Okay, well, welcome back to the Automotive Tales podcast for this very short one-off episode. Well, it might not be short, because uh, we've got a good 45 minutes to get to the NEC. Um, so we're going to chat rubbish for probably 45 minutes. Yeah. And maybe sounds... shout at cars on the motorway as we go. That's the one. That's um, the one. Greg, we are in the car. We are heading to the NEC for this year's uh, Classic Car Show. Uh, and so we decided we're going to do a podcast. We haven't done one for, for crikey, over a year now. Um, so we've a lot to catch up on. Yeah, just a tad. It's been uh, quite a long burners. For those of you who have uh, noticed in the continuity that uh, I have now sported a beard. <laughs> uh, I have had five months away at Her Majesty's pleasure. Not criminally. Armed forces for my sins, so uh, <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that. Those I people like, oh, he's been in prison for five months. No, no, five months in Romania. So, uh, if anybody's interested, but yeah, I now sport the fashionable beard. So, last time we did the podcast, uh, we spent a bit of time talking about things that irritate us, and I know you're itching, itching to have a rant. Um, because you've been driving a variety of different cars as pool cars and hire cars recently. Um, so uh, what, what's the first thing you want to really rant about? What's really annoyed you about these new cars? Well, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, at uh, Yorkshire Sea Eng, you'll know that I'm starting doing some hire car one-liners. I'm working through a series of hire cars at the moment. All of them are about 6 to 12 months old. Uh, BMW, uh, Volkswagen, MG being a couple that I've been through. But the biggest thing I've got at the moment that seems to come to fruition, particularly amongst the German manufacturers, is touchscreen everything. Touchscreen on the steering wheel, touchscreen in the dash, all the controls touch. And I'm sorry, it's just wrong. It's distracting and it's wrong. The example I'll give you, late at night, on a Wednesday evening, driving down to Bristol. I'm tired, it's been a long day, I've got to get down there uh, for the following morning. And I'm trying to adjust the temperature. When you look over at the touchscreen, the temperature controls aren't lit. And you have to go into four menus to get to the basic functions you want. It's wrong. And I think what is scary, and I think what a lot of people don't sometimes realise, is I was looking at the touchscreen so much, I looked up and I just realised how far I'd travelled. And I have to call into question, at what point are we going to end up with some major smashes if we haven't already? Because people are being distracted by this obsession by manufacturers of everything being touchscreen. I couldn't agree more. So uh, those that follow the Automotive Tales channel will be familiar with the video I did about the Volvo V60R design that we've got as our daily runaround. Um, and one of the things I point out on point out on that um, is that there's for me there's sort of one too many features buried in the menus. In that, I like to have kind of key buttons, tactile buttons I can find my way to without taking my eyes off the road for certain key functions. And 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 this is where I think. I ranted about the Golf GTD Mark 8 that I had uh, and the fact that you know you try and push change the volume on the touch sensitive controls on the steering wheel and you change the cruise control and vice versa or you'd knock it out. And that's dangerous. Which is really a pain in the backside where it's got adaptive cruise control linked to safety systems so it's trying to auto brake and uh, auto accelerate. But the one series has adaptive cruise control, it has buttons, but at least in that car 
in the middle they've put a very small little tiny screen it's only a couple of inches by in size but it's got that key thing of fan speed uh, and temperature it's independent from the main uh, in infotainment system. yes and going one step further and again this goes back to my comments about a big comfortable car with the MGHS that I had last week across the button bottom and probably the same as John with the Peugeot really mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that he's reviewed They've got a set of piano keys that had all the critical functions, you know, heater screen, main screen for demist, shortcut to temperature, shortcut to home. Just critical buttons. The VW, none of it. And it makes it really, really, really distracting. So it's interesting that you've got MG, which is uh, essentially a new to the UK market Chinese manufacturer under an old brand, the old MG brand. Uh, producing these sort of SUVs, sort of entry level to sort of lower mid-range. And then you've got the big players, Volkswagen and BMW, and the ones that have got it wrong, it seems, is Volkswagen. Which is crazy. The Golf is the mainstay of the Volkswagen range. It's kind of the benchmark for everything else. And they seem to have got it wrong. And bear in mind it's supposed to be the people's car. I can see a lot of people being put off. Mm by the fact you can't do basic functions without having to go into a touchscreen. I have to say, despite my um, my kind of take on the 2008, uh, yes, Greg, we're going straight across here. Sorry, we're podcasting and recording a video because we're going to do the podcast on YouTube. And I'm directing Greg to go uh, and find his way out of Loughborough because it's all changed. Um, and in true engineer fashion, we haven't bothered to set the sat-nav either. No, we're just watching the sat-nav screen. Because... We're just watching the sat-nav screen. Yeah, can't. why would you do that? That would be useful. Um... So yeah, despite its foibles, the 2W8 did have the, the all-important piano buttons. And actually, the piano buttons is it's quite an important part of it, because having the buttons flash bleh, flat against the dashboard is one thing. But when they stick out like that, it's actually even easier as a tactile movement without taking your eyes off the road yep. to hit the buttons. And the other thing, though, I have to say, this car that we're in, so we're in Greg's Mazda 6, um, and the V60 has, is the heads-up display. So I think the kind of technology's gone two ways. You've got one part of the technology which is taking your attention away from the road with all those screens in the centre console, but some manufacturers have counteracted that by adding the heads-up display, which allows you to keep your eyes on the road a lot more, and I'm a massive, massive fan of the heads-up display. I thought it was really a bit gimmicky at first until mm. I started using it and then realised, actually, this is brilliant, especially when, if you are driving a little tired, which I will say you probably shouldn't do, but occasionally you get caught in that situation. Actually, to take your eyes off the road when you're starting to lose your reaction time is even more dangerous. So the heads-up display, by the same means, becomes even more important. Oh, definitely. And if it's not a heads-up display, I think one of the ways manufacturers can do it really well, and this is where BMW's... Uh, I found BMW's single-screen uh, dash uh, was very good, is if the display in the centre that's giving you all your critical information is well set up, it's clear, it's concise. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a massive help, and that's what it should be. It should be a driver aid. Uh, I'd, I'd, actually, I'd actually prefer more screen um, resolution and granularity and a better quality screen in the centre of the steering wheel um, than in the centre console. I'd be quite happy for the centre console to just have radio and temperature controls in the old school fashion mm. and then have all the other information at the driver's, in the driver's eye line. Because the passenger doesn't need to know what speed you're doing, mm. doesn't need to know... There's even and, navigation, necessarily. And it's interesting, because whoever has done the ergonomics on it as well... So, 
that's done here. If I want to touch this screen, I could touch this screen from here. Um, I'm six, just over six foot three tall, and I could touch this. My husband Steve could touch it very easily in his memory position. The Volkswagen is one of the few cars I've got in that I've had to lean forward mm. to get to the centre screen because it's placed up on the dash. Yeah. And again, that is even worse because I'm then leaning forward to do this, as you can probably see, I'm demonstrating, and I'm not focusing. Yeah. It's just. It's one of the very few cars in a long time that I've got out of and I felt wound up and stressed, not stressed, stressed is the wrong word, I've just found... It wasn't a relaxing drive. It was not a relaxing drive. I got to Bristol, I was late to Bristol, checked into the hotel and I just sat there and it was a big sigh of relief. I was like, oh, thank God that drive's over. And that shouldn't be the case, you know, the MGHS, yes it was thirsty. But you know what? Once you got on the motorway, it settled down. It was just a big, comfortable barge. Uh, the BMW 128, brilliant engine, by the way. Phenomenal engine. I'd love to do a review on that separately. Uh, really quick, but really economical. So BMW, if you're listening slash watching, or you're a dealer, or even you have the new 128. TI. The TI. Uh, can we borrow it? We'd like to do a review on Greg. Greg really enjoyed yeah. that car, which... I, I haven't been the biggest fan of BMW of late. And how much of a fan have I been of BMW well, the 20 odd years that you've never. known me? Um, so, this is a, it's a real turn up for the books, actually. Yeah. And this is the, so the one we're talking about, the, the new 128Ti is the front wheel drive yes. mini platform based. I mini, think? mini platform based, uh, front wheel drive. Uh, I know the purebreds and pure breeds out there will cry that BMW betrayed with the rear wheel drive. But you yeah, know what? I'm one of those, sorry. Yeah. In the real world, where well, you just want to get on with the world but have a bit of fun on UK roads, it's more than adequate. In fact, it's, it's definitely definitely more than adequate. It's very good. Basically, it, if you're not doing Nürburgring laps or not, track days, yeah. it doesn't really matter. It's not real-wheel drive. It doesn't really matter because the stability control and the, the, the aids are really good. It's well-balanced. It was firm, but it wasn't uncomfortable. It rode well. It was quiet. The Spotify infotainment system. Were Sorry, all... just just to point out, that was a uh, Toyota AE86 just went past you the way. Those are like hen's teeth. Carry on. Yep. Oh, we're also playing spot the EVs today. It's yes, white sir. Teslas. White good. How many, how many have we seen? Three white. Three. Teslas so three far. white Teslas. If you're buying a Tesla. Can you get another colour? Don't color, buy it in white. That's boring. But I did see a Polestar 2 in Loughborough White as well, so I think yeah. it's just the colour yeah. for EVs. The Polestar 2, I actually, I think it's a pretty cool looking car. I've, I've kind of got a bit bored of the Tesla styling. Yeah, well, I like the Polestar 2, particularly in gunmetal grey. But, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, actually, if you're from Volvo, or, sorry, Polestar, um, and, you know, you've got a, a spare press Polestar 2, we'd like to try one of those too, because I really, really like that car. Somebody at work's bought one recently and parked next to me in the V60, and uh, I was quite taken by yeah. how pretty that car is. Interesting, it's one of the few cars I've seen of late, notwithstanding. Ah, oh, speak of the devil. Speak of the post, there's one. Just gone past us. It's one of the few cars I've started to look at that would actually suit my needs. Uh, and I go back to a previous podcast where I rant about finding EVs that do everything. This has space for the dogs, has the tow bar on it, you can lots of kit in it. Yeah, anyway. So while we're on the subject of EV, I'm going to kind of try and link those two segments because we got very distracted. We did. Um, so we, we were talking a little bit about the cars you've had as hire cars. One of them was the, the new MG... HS. Thank you, that one. Uh, which is a sort, of, sort of an SUV and it's got a small turbocharged engine. Yep. And one of the things you were telling me that was most notable about it is how thirsty it is, how much petrol it uses. Yep. 
which to most people might seem counterintuitive. It's, you know, it's a modern car, it's got a small engine, surely it should be economical. Whereas it's, it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? And, and I go back to the, the 128Ti and why I was so impressed with it. You know, that's best part, 240, 245 brake horsepower, I believe. So quick, you know, not 60, I think it's about six, six, six and a half seconds. So, you know, it's play, playful, plenty of power to overtake really quite quick. But on the motorway, that, that's 60, 70 miles an hour, 70, obviously 70 miles an hour on cruise control. <laughs> uh, obviously 70 miles obviously, an hour. Obviously 70 miles an hour. It was doing 48 to the gallon on the way home, and it never dropped below 41 to the gallon. You could get it down, indicated mid-30s if you were having a play. Uh, but the MGHS, despite being steady with it, despite having it in eco mode, I could not get from home to Bristol and back, which is about a 400-mile round trip, without having to fill up. I struggled to get it above 33 to the gallon. That's horrendous, isn't it? So I'm assuming both of these are petrol. Both of these petrol. And the MG, so we know that the BMW would be a 2-litre four-cylinder, will it? A uh, 2-litre four-cylinder turbo. The MG is a 1.5 four-cylinder turbo with about 160 brake horsepower. So actually what you've got is, uh, you know, one-third bigger capacity in the BMW yeah. and better, almost a third better fuel economy. It seems counterintuitive, but it's actually, it's the Mazda model is simplified lightness they've yep. always gone for bigger capacity engines rather than small and turbo and on that note going back to the EVs interesting for those of you who are watching a lot of the other car channels at the moment the Megane E-Tech has just arrived Ooh. and interestingly one of the few first comments that's come out from one of the major reviewers on that is the fact that Renault have done a lot of work to lighten the car mm. which means with a 60 kilowatt battery so smaller than your sort of 75, 80s that are coming out in a lot of manufacturers, 74s. It's forecast to do 290, nearly 300 miles. Wow. But Renault have focused on the fact that they've gone for one of the very first slimline batteries. And they've gone to reduce the weight. Because I think they've recognised, and I think their CEO acknowledged, that EVs are just getting a bit too heavy. And you're actually counterintuitively having to put bigger batteries in. I know it's counterintuitive because the battery is the bulk of the weight, but the EVs are getting heavier, which means you need more power to get range, where actually the focus needs to be, let's keep the similar size battery packs and capacities, you know, you saw 60, 80 kilowatt hours, yeah. but let's lighten the car. Absolutely. I mean, some of these, the electric cars are you know, weighing in at well over two tonnes. To put it in context, a Bentley Turbo R weighs three tonnes. Um, an early uh, Silver Spirit is 2.5. 2.3 tonnes so you're talking the weight of an early Rolls Royce you know an 80s Rolls Royce for you know your average run around think of the amount of wear on tyres and roads yeah. and this is where Renault have done really well with the Zoe I've got a neighbour who's got a, a ZE40 mm -hmm. uh, Zoe and she regularly gets 250 miles and that's only a wow. 40 kilowatt hour battery but it shows you the importance of weight what it does to your performance yeah absolutely so, I mean Colin Chapman would be turning in his grave you know his motto was simplify and add lightness yeah um, and that was performance and here we're talking about performance in a different metric we're talking about you know miles to gallon miles to kilowatt yeah. I'm not quite sure what the actual metric is for an electric car but it's, it's uh, miles per kilowatt or miles per watt it's something, it depends manufacturers measure it slightly different quite a lot of people in the general public tend to measure how many miles they're getting per kilowatt 
because then you could do a very simplification of if you've got 40 kilowatts and you're getting four, uh, yeah, okay. four miles per kilowatt that you can average, you know what, four times 40 is uh, 160. So so this is it's an interesting point here. We're, we're trying to get our heads around the metrics and the terminology. You know, we're quite keen petrol heads mm. um, and generally car people have no aversion to electric cars or hybrid cars, but we haven't managed to make that step into one. We ju- mm. It just didn't make sense the last time we were buying a car. Yeah. Um, and it's still all a little bit of a blur. It's becoming more popular and more common vernacular, but there is still a lot to learn, I think, about there's this new a, technology. And there's a whole cult, there's a whole culture change as well. I had this chat with again with my neighbour who uh, has this. Stopped. Your car can't have broken down because the engine is still running. Well, wow. get out of the middle of the road. But anyway, the once John's had a little run there. Sorry, that's fine. Uh, but the big thing that people aren't getting either is how to use an EV. So I've got a friend of mine who has a plug-in hybrid. She's got it as a company car. She gets 38 miles out of, a, out of the battery. And she's actually said what she's learned just having 38 miles of battery in her BMW 2 Series, I think it is, uh, is that she can go to work and do 95% of what she needs... On, on 38 miles. That's incredible, isn't and it? And she just plugs it in when she gets home. She says, it takes me 10 seconds to plug it in. So actually, Mazda's philosophy for the MX-30, where everybody slated it not having a huge amount of miles, Mazda did say at the time, most people don't need that day-to-day. You're, you're kind of um, lulled into this, um, this false insecurity yes. that you need maximum range. That's actually the reason we didn't go electric last time. How? Rage said, we need 250 miles minimum. However, that is not being held by the UK's... Oh, you f***ing Stupid driver. That was so dead. Well, pull that on the camera. You can see why we were swearing. That, there was plenty of space, and then the driver waited until we were really close, and then pulled out. Yeah. I hate stupid drivers. Use your eyes. I was about to say a BMW driver, but that might be slated BMW drivers. So, woosa, woosa. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I thought we were going to have a crash on camera. I mean, that made, would have made great YouTube footage. Would have made a good job for the insurance company, though, wouldn't it? No, we're not. Going back to your point you were saying about Mrs. Automotive Tales, Miss Rage, the big thing I have seen, though, interestingly, as part of my travels up and down the country, is when I've been stopping at services, I've been looking at charging ability. And there is a bit of truth behind what a lot of the reports are saying that the charging infrastructure is just not good enough. Now, Tesla have just opened up their network to all manufacturers, so we'll... I heard this yesterday. Hopefully that will be a big step forward and we'll start to prove that most people could cope with a 250-mile range and just charge up for long journeys if they can get, you know, pop in for a coffee, 20 minutes charge, off you go. And it's interesting you say that. So um, we're part of a village association. It's very hot fuzz. Um that put an event in our village and we were having a meeting last night to wrap up from fireworks uh, 42 South yep awesome and um, one of the girls in our group uh, Becky she's got a Tesla and is driving down to Cornwall today from the East Midlands and I actually asked her you know what's what's the plan with that you know do you do you have to stop loads and she said no we'll have two breaks on the way down and have yep. something to eat and a coffee put it on the supercharger um, and it'll get you know sort of 70-80% and we'll press on to the next one and she said, we probably won't even bother charging at the destination in Cornwall because the charging infrastructure there is great. 
but they've got enough range from the last supercharger to get in, do the driving around while they're there, get back to the supercharger, and then charge up for the journey home. Um, she said, and you know, they don't need to stop twice, but they will stop twice uh, just to put in, you know, 60-80% on the very, rapid charge. Very nice yodel, yodel wagon driver there. After that, uh, <laughs> nothing like trying to record while you're on the motorway. Um, so yeah, and she seemed to say it was perfectly practical. She charges at work. She doesn't even have a fast charger home. She only has a three-pin yeah. trickle charger just in case, and she, she just doesn't need it. She just charges, you know, while she's out and about. Yeah. So. I think for Tesla, who really pushed the infrastructure, that's there. And the fact they're opening up that network to other users, that's going to make a massive difference. And the key, I think, has always been the rapid charge. If you can rapid charge, it gets you closer and closer to the idea of filling your car up. And the mindset that if you plug in at home overnight, your car's effectively got a full fuel tank every single morning. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hoping electric is on the cards for the next time we we change vehicles um, I'd like it to be hydrogen well should we bring that so into this the equation is, this is where I wanted to get to go so our last set with yourself myself diesel um, by the way that's one of the good things of not going to the petrol station in the future the smell of diesel on yeah, your hands yeah we just filled up we just filled diesel. up um, so we had we had Chris and Martin on the last set of podcasts but in between then uh, we did a set of podcasts on what the future of motoring might be so December last year we were looking uh, with Graham Bennett and with Jess from, I can't remember the name of her channel, because uh, she's got Racing Mentor as the one she uses now. Um, I'll insert pictures in the YouTube video and I'll put it in the comments section for the, uh, uh, for the podcast. But we were talking about what the future's going to be. And what's changed since then? Well, probably in reality it's not an awful lot. The charging network has got better. Um, we have seen now the government's committed through the 10-point plan to um, you know, increasing charging networks, building infrastructure for making electric cars in the UK, increasing the size of the national grid to cope with additional electric cars. But we're also seeing a massive uh, upheaval in the oil and gas industry as the hydrogen economy becomes a thing. This is what Graham Bennett was telling us about. He was basically saying, you know, hydrogen is coming. Whether you like it or not, it's going to be a thing. Um, and it seems that the car manufacturers are actually slowly taking note. So we've seen Toyota have developed a hydrogen-based internal combustion engine. Myra? Uh, I think, no, that was a fuel cell one. No, that's the fuel cell one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is Mira. now available. But yeah, I think they're using a Corolla as the base because um, it uses the same platform. They've just converted the fuel system to hydrogen. Nice. Uh, and then synthetic fuels have gathered a bit more pace, so Porsche have moved on a bit. I believe, I don't know if 2022 is the year they're going to start using synthetic fuels. I think they're going to use a mix of biofuels uh, at Le Mans, but the aim is to move to using synthetic fuels. And I think Formula One is looking in the same direction as well. So we have seen a change, but in terms of you know you and I, the consumer, I think we're very, very much still in the, your choices are petrol, diesel, hybrid, electric. Yep. Um, which is a shame. I'd like to see hydrogen coming on, coming on board. Yeah, I think I know. I think we need to find something like that that can provide the longer term. Because I, I'm not convinced unless we can make it the next breakthrough in battery technology, uh, whether through graphene changes in technology. Unless we can bring that weight down, I think we will hit a point as well where the batteries will get so heavy it's almost negating the advantage they produce. And for people who need a big 4 before, who need to tow for work, capacity, 
there needs to be that solution. There needs to be something, yeah, an alternative. And this is the problem with batteries, is we're getting to the point, the law of diminishing returns. Yes. There is no big uh, silver bullet in terms of battery technology on the horizon, certainly from from what I do for in a living, I've done a lot of research into this. In the near future, anyway, unless yeah. something comes. A lot of the improvements are actually coming in the packaging and the control systems for the battery. So you've obviously got you've got your basic cell architecture, which isn't really changing. So the cells themselves, the bit that holds the energy, isn't getting any more energy dense than they already are. Uh, the way we pack those into modules, that is improving. And the way we cool those modules, the amount of cooling those modules actually need, is improving. So that's making them slightly better packaged. And then the overall package, including your management system, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller by, by the year. Um, so we are going to see improvements, but it, it's going to hit a, a kind of peak where it can only get so energy dense because it's limited by that cell technology. Um, so yeah, there has to be an alternative. Uh, while battery is good, it has a place, I think. Uh, and it isn't all motoring. No. Uh, and one thing, actually, that has come up very recently, and I think we mentioned it in the podcast in December, uh, and they're now moving to a more broader trial, is the idea of uh, key motorways in Europe of using uh, pantographs. It's what you get on the yes. top of the train. Germany. And they have, um, they have a power rail above the inside lane of the motorway, and you can use an electric truck. It doesn't need large batteries. All this battery's got to do is get it off the motorway network to its depot and then back onto the motorway network and then it's on charge again and yeah. it's charging from that and running from that power and I actually think that's a really really good idea it's a good idea but I think the fundamental change is that the amount of money to change something like the autobahn network because obviously that's been trialled in Germany at the moment or it's just finished a trial there is significant yeah it's and an infrastructure cost and, I, and, I, and, I, and this is where again talk about oh just here Kona coming past us. Uh, Hyundai Kona. Uh, oh, is it electric? I'm not sure if it's an EV one, no? No, I think it's a. No, petrol. it's petrol. Ah, damn. Chunks. Uh, but on a side note, we were talking the other day about trams and stuff in the city centre. We think back to older technology. We used to have trams in pretty much every city and trolley pluses, and we got rid of them for the convenience, and now. We're looking to go back to some of that technology, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting how the circle goes round sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it seems the current government is no um, no fear of spending money on infrastructure projects, which I should point out, I think, is a very good thing. A lot of inward investment to the future, um, but whatever we do with transport, there needs to be an infrastructure. We can't just rely on the manufacturers to to solve the problem. We need to give the infrastructure to go with it. In the same way, when you know mass transport became a thing, we had to build motorways to take the pressure off the little A roads that were existing that were used by, you know, Fred and his his Ford Model T and the horse and cart. Yeah. And as much as I love my cars, I think one of the big areas has to be the railways. Um, again, I'm using hire cars as we've just discussed to get to Bristol because the railway network to get to Bristol from where I live is about three changes which is not too much of the end of the world but it's 160 pound which is that's ridiculous for a ticket and even if i book it out in advance it's 120 pound to do a four-hour journey and it's cheaper to hire a car and put the fuel in it so i've just come up with a challenge idea uh, those that follow the automotive chain automotive tales youtube channel will be familiar with the project i did in summer this year where i had the option of basically using the Rolls-Royce to drive to Yorkshire 
uh, or nothing because all the other cars were either broken or in use. Uh, and I worked out how much it was going to cost in fuel to do the journey from East Midlands up to West Yorkshire in the Rolls Royce and worked out it was cheaper to buy a slightly broken Peugeot, drive that Peugeot, fix that Peugeot, drive it back and then sell it on um, than it was to put fuel in, in the Rolls Royce. By the same means, I wonder whether if you were to get a last minute ticket from, let's say, Glasgow or Edinburgh to London, which I'm aware is in the sort of £300 region, could you buy a car that would get you that journey and back, including the fuel, and then sell it on uh, for, the, for the same price or less than the train ticket? Because if you can, buy a car, tax it, insure it, drive it, do any repairs you need, fuel it, for less than a train ticket, there is something very, very wrong with our public transport network. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that note, I think we should bring this podcast into the station of, uh, of motorway waffling um, as we're sort of heading towards the NEC. Um, and, well, if you come with anything else to rant about, we'll always do another episode either later on in the journey or on the way back. Um, so, on that note, thank you for listening uh, and uh, do keep your eyes on the Automotive Tales uh, YouTube channel and on the podcast. We'll try and do a few more podcasts. I'm hoping to uh, rope a few people in we're going to talk to at the NEC today. Um, I've now got a venue where we can set up a proper podcast studio, which has, believe it or not, has a bar, like an actual bar with pumped beer and everything. So, yeah, um, so maybe we might need to find a motel as well for people to stay over. Because well, yeah. it could get messy. It could. Um, but yeah, so keep an eye on the channels. Uh, you can also follow us on all the social medias. So we're at Automotive Tales on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, and Greg is at CNG on Instagram. Yorkshire CNG. At Yorkshire CNG. Sorry, on Twitter. You haven't quite figured out the, the gram thing yet, have you? No. Oh, yes. It's on my to-do list. I thought I'd grow the beard first. Power the beard. The beard is great. Maybe the beard should just have its own Instagram. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Stories of a beard. Yeah, indeed. The beardy car journal. Uh, right. Anyway, thank you for listening, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. That's all for this uh, episode of the Automotive Tales podcast. Bye. Don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Thank you for listening.